0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Daniel Moran. I host another podcast, 15 Minute Film Fanatics, but today I'm thrilled to be spending more than 15 minutes with Ryan Udewilligan, author of Killing John Wayne The Making of the Conqueror, published in 2021 by Lions Press. Hi, Ryan. How's it going? Thanks
1: so much for having me.
0: Great. Thanks for coming on the show. So I am so eager to dive into your book, which I thought was terrific. But before we do, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Of course. Uh, So I am a writer, uh, primarily uh, fiction books. I've done three novels now. I've done a few uh, nonfiction books about film history, one called the 101 Most Influential Coming of Age Movies, a long enough title I know. Uh, But I've also been a journalist and lucky enough to write about uh, the entertainment industry, about... uh, uh, of course, classic film, my favorite subject, and I'm just continuing uh, to gravitate more and more about introducing uh, classic films to kids.
0: Great, great. So this is a terrific book about a terrible, terrible movie. And, you know, when we think of John Wayne, you said classic films, right? We think of Stagecoach and, and Red River and The Searchers. I mean, he, regardless of what people think about John Wayne, he has a long resume and you have a lot to pick from, right? But your book is about what many would call, even his admirers would call his outright worst film and possibly one of the worst big budget films ever made. Um, it's The Conqueror, directed by Dick Powell and released by RKO in 1956. So before we talk about the book and why you wrote it, can you give the listeners a summary of The Conqueror? Like what happens in it? You know, What's the premise? Who's in it?
1: Boy, well, I, I don't think the filmmakers ever considered uh, <laughs> coming up with the premise. So that's a, a, a tough task for a person who wrote a book about it. But uh, yeah, it's it stars John Wayne as Genghis Khan, and that's uh, just hearing that fact is unbelievable unto itself. But uh, co-starring Susan Hayward, uh, Pedro Armendariz. Uh, uh, we also have um, Agnes Moorhead in, in supporting roles. Lots of different character actors popping up, like uh, John Hoyt. Uh, it's it's got a great cast actually, but uh, yeah, as, as soon as you hear John Wayne playing Genghis Khan and kind of stops, and you're like, oh boy, this is going to be a ride. And uh, there really is no historical accuracy. They try and capture the life and times of a young Genghis Khan uh, his his name in the movies is Temujin, uh, that was the initial name of uh, the Conqueror and uh, it's basically a sword and sandal epic uh, where we follow uh, Genghis Khan trying to rescue uh, the love interest Bortai and there's a lot of Good battle sequences in the desert, and a lot of scenes that have nothing to do with the plot. A lot of dancing, surprisingly, uh, a lot of uh, uh, fighting on horseback, and uh, no historical accuracy whatsoever.
0: Whatsoever, yeah. And I've seen it. I saw it in preparation for the podcast. And yes, it is pretty awful. I mean, you can't even give it. You can't even give it like the mystery science theater treatment because it's just like one bad joke.
1: exactly yes yes now it's it's a tough one to crack i I wish i could dive deeper into the plot but there really isn't it just is such a
0: yeah you went deeper than i think anyone anyone involved with the <laughs> So But well, what's funny about this book is that it's part of a very small, specific genre of books that look at a film that either didn't take off or were an outright bomb, right? So you have Lillian Ross wrote that great book, Picture, about the making of John Huston's The Red Badge of Courage, which was not what it was. You know, it wasn't the Maltese Falcon, right? And um, you have Stephen Bach wrote Final Cut about Heaven's Gate. Julie Solomon wrote uh, the great book, The Devil's Candy, about the time Brian De Palma tried to make the bonfire of the vanities. So, And now there's yours, right? So here's a question for you: What is the fascination with these films that failed so spectacularly? Right, like I could imagine if you said, "I want to write a book about the Maltese Falcon," right? Okay, or Citizen Kane or Casablanca. Like those books capture our imagination, right? But this this movie does the opposite. So, you know, why the Conqueror films? What do you think the fascination is with these these big disasters? Well,
1: I think the simplest uh, term to use is a little bit of schadenfreude. I think these gigantic movies with so much money being thrown and stardom and a little bit of pretension even. I think, you know, it's a rarity that movies are good and uh, success and they do everything right. But I think there's a lot of people who uh, just want to hear those stories of, of epic failure and i think there's a few people who might be even rooting to hear these stories but i, I personally like there's so many outlets like uh, there's a, a, the podcast uh, all about uh, terrible movies and and how they got that way called how did this get made and it's uh, been on for almost a decade just diving into different stories of troubled production so i think people are just naturally drawn to that conflict and and drawn to uh you know it's such a an an art or a medium that people really uh, love and, and and cherish and people have their favorite movies and you know, there, there's so many people who just want to know more about the behind the scenes and i think yeah whenever we're get a, a good uh conflict or a good uh problem uh, I think people are just naturally drawn to that because that's that's what makes a good movie naturally is is good uh, conflict. so when it's done in the real and done you know behind the scenes of movies I, I think it doesn't get much better than that and so then when you have something like the Conqueror where literally everything goes wrong and there's every problem and then some uh, obviously I think people even you don't have to be a film fan to want to know and hear about it
0: yeah, you just made me think of the idea that there, there's probably a good movie uh, if someone made a movie of the making of the Conqueror. Exactly. Yes,
1: yeah. There, there's layers and layers yeah, for nice sure.
0: Absolutely. Let's talk about behind the scenes. So your your book begins with a look up of, of of RKO and and how RKO kind of fit into the, the the Hollywood studio system and its famous president, you know, Howard Hughes. The Howard Hughes stuff in the book is great. So I want to read a little quote of yours about Howard Hughes from the book. So as RKO's finances got hairier for Hughes and things started to get in trouble, you say this, quote, production choices got far stranger than anyone figured possible. Grasping for straws and swinging for the fences, Hughes recognized that the only card he held at that point was the ability to craft the most bizarre spectacles ever seen on film, end quote. So can you talk about Howard Hughes and his importance to the story?
1: Well, honestly, Howard Hughes is probably my in to the story. If there is such a thing, I would classify myself as a Howard Hughes nerd. He's such a fascinating man. Uh, He's had so many different facets from filmmaking, aviation, and then his weird uh, quirks with uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. He's so bizarre. But one of the things that fascinated me was he just randomly bought RKO in 1948 when it went up for sale. He swooped in and then took the controlling interest and then ran it into the ground. So he spent uh, six years basically making terrible movies. He never actually set foot in the RKO studios, or or they say maybe he did once and just instructed people to paint it. We'll never know that, but uh, yeah, he had just had all these strange quirks, like employing uh, these spies uh, who would go and report to him if they heard anyone had any communist ties, and then he would fire them, and Uh, movies were getting stranger and stranger and few and far between. He even uh, decided he didn't want RKO for a time and sold it to the Mafia and then bought it back. So there's just so much going wrong. And then by the time The Conqueror rolls around, he's making these terrible movies like uh, Son of Sinbad, which is basically just these terrible dancing uh, harem movies. And uh, Underwater, which is... Partially, fil- mostly filmed underwater. He's just trying to do whatever he can to, to keep RKO afloat, but uh, his heart really wasn't in movie making, for sure. He was in it to prey on young starlets that he would contract, and yeah, he just uh, he was an interesting figure, and I think RKO is by far one of the uh, weirder uh, chapters before he leaves Hollywood and sort of his professional life for good and becomes uh, the uh, germaphobic, uh, long-haired, uh, long-nailed man that we often uh, hear about in, in biographies and movies.
0: Yeah, all the stuff about Jet Pilot and, and underwater, underwater with an exclamation point. Yes, with an exclamation point. Yeah. 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 All that stuff was great Don't in the book. That. So, so, you know, you talk about him and his, his spectacle, right? So this film costs $6 million. It's about... today, and that big budget was part of its advertising, right? So what are some of your favorite examples or anecdotes uh, of excess or hand-over-the-mouth stuff that made you say, you know, what were they thinking as you learned about the making of The Conqueror? I have a few favorites, but I want to hear some of yours.
1: There's a lot of excess. I mean, they they filmed in the desert in, in Utah, which I mean, was unnecessary to begin with, but they, would, they used a lot of animals in this movie for no reason. They had a bear on set. They had a panther. And then my favorite is they had a little uh, hawk that would sit on John Wayne's shoulder. And the hawk was apparently sick, so they shut down production for almost a week while the hawk got better. Uh, and you could barely even point out the hawk in the movie. So all of these animals are blinking you miss them. And uh, yeah, it just cost them thousands, if not millions of dollars to delay. The obvious one is that once they finished the production, um, they sent all the footage back to Howard Hughes and he was not happy. So he ordered reshoots, but instead of going back, he hired a bunch of truckers to go and take the sand from where they had just shot and then bring it all the way back to RKO Studios and then cover Uh, a a soundstage with the sand, and he did this apparently because he was worried that people would spot differences in the sand, so uh, I I don't... I can't remember off the top of my head how many tons. It's something like 50 tons of sand is trucked in from Utah all the way to Los Angeles, and then we never know where that sand went. I, I don't know if he ever sent it back, or just brushed it off to the streets, or if it's still just floating around Hollywood, but... Yeah, I I don't know the logic behind that one.
0: Yeah, I actually saw the film after I read your book and my fa- I love the example of the red sand. So I really tried to watch for those moments where the red sand, and like it, you kind of get bored as you watch it. So you're take exactly. You know? And did you, any I difference? Did I did not see it, but I laughed when I saw the panther Sweet. and the bear and the hawk. And then and, he succeeded. Uh, <laughs> and he succeeded yeah. So so now, now, well, that's all the comical aspects of it, but your book also has this more, serious element to it as well. And the remarkable thing about the book is I think the way you fold in this second story about nuclear testing in the Southwest. And so can you give your listeners some idea of like what was happening before the filming of The Conqueror, like in Utah, like in St. George and Snow Canyon, and how that may have affected those who worked on the film? Of course,
1: yeah. Uh, And that was definitely the aspect that I, I didn't know as much about coming into it. And then researching more and more, it was just... Shocking and obviously I had to include a little bit of history and it was just so fascinating. I just kept wanting to pour in more and more about the nuclear history because after uh, World War II, uh, the nuclear bomb was uh, successful for the United States. And they were doing testing down in uh, the, the, what they called Bikini Atoll and the, these different areas in Pacific Islands. And then they were looking for another place to actually do these tests and they were looking at places like the Galapagos Islands of all places, but they eventually settled um, just outside of Las Vegas, uh, the Nevada Proving Grounds. There was an army base there and they started to do uh, nuclear tests from 1951 to 1953 and it was deemed to be safe. There wasn't a lot of thought as far as health concerns went, uh, but... It just so happened they shot this one specific nuclear bomb test in 1953 called Upshot Not Whole Harry, and it happened during a windstorm, so it actually blew about 137 miles uh, towards the area of Saint George, Utah, and Snow Canyon where they filmed the movie, and. Right before they got there, uh, there was these sheep that were getting sick, livestock that were uh, growing abscesses and, and mysteriously dying, uh, and they didn't really pay much attention to it. They just were a little concerned. Then they filmed the movie, and this is uh, what leads to the, the, the myth, the legend, uh, the uh, sadder part of uh, the Conqueror's legacy
0: yeah so you just it's funny you mentioned the sheep because you describe it was i think forty-three hundred sheep dying of radiation fallout right and and a lot of controversies of what the public was told about testing you know it's kind of like nothing to see here folks nothing everything's fine everything's fine
1: exactly well people were encouraged to go watch uh history unfold quote unquote and and so people were actually going to watch these nuclear tests happen people were going to las vegas to feel the rumble in the casinos because of the nearby nuclear test so it was a big culture at the time. And, and it was uh, seen as a positive culture in the late 40s, early 50s.
0: Yeah. And so uh, you talk later in the book about a People magazine article um, from 1980, and you have two reporters who talked about you know this this actual event and the Conqueror. I just want to read you a quote from your book about this. You say, quote, and Senate; those are the reporters, tallied the Conqueror's cast and crew, a total of 220 members, and claimed that as of 1980, 91 of them had contracted cancer since 1954. That was the year they they filmed it in the desert. And furthermore, 46 of the 91, including more familiar names of Wayne, Powell, um, Amandara's, Hayward, and Moorhead had died, end quote. Now, later you say in the book, like, well, nothing's conclusive. And these numbers actually are in line with general statistics regarding cancer. But can can you talk about, there's a feeling in your book that It might be statistically fine, like maybe maybe we're tilting at windmills, but you can't shake like the suspicion. Like, so what? What did your gut tell you? What was your journey as you as you went through this?
1: Exactly. Well, yeah, you uh, you you can't shake that fact. That that that's the thing. I I do believe that uh, well, nuclear testing fallout is. Bad for you. Radiation is is not good for the health. So I do think ultimately it, it played a role in making uh, the cast and, and crew sick. Uh, with the actual numbers uh, that are apparently in line with uh, with the actual cancer statistics of the time, I, I I I have a hard time wrapping my head around that because it is such a concrete group of people, and when you look at the amount of people that actually got cancer, and there's still no way of knowing the rest of the people that weren't in that tally, and you know, I I tried my best to try and locate some of these people or try and add to that tally, and you can't find anyone anymore. Uh, Basically, everyone is passed on, so those numbers have definitely uh, increased. So I I think it definitely played a role. The other argument I try to make is that John Wayne and Susan Hayward and most of the cast and crew were heavy smokers. There's even a legend that John Wayne never, uh, used a lighter throughout the day when he smoked a cigarette, he would light the first one and then he would just light his next cigarette with the one that he was already smoking. So of course, when you hear facts like that, well, obviously, yeah, that played a role, <laughs> I think in him getting lung cancer. But when you look at everybody, even people like Susan Hayward, or pardon me, uh, Agnes Moorhead, who were not big smokers. Yeah, I, I think, uh, the nuclear tests and looking at people who actually were residing in the area in St. George, Utah, and and actually were present for the nuclear tests, they all got cancer too. So obviously, something is happening. It's just nearly impossible to prove or uh, to make the actual case that either the government or someone will recognize that this was an actual
0: fact. Sure. Right. But that's what I meant. That's what's good about the book is that you, you come right out and say that in the book. You say that you know, but but the fee- the the feeling is there. So, let, let's talk about your 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 approach to the whole subject. Because two things I loved about the book are this: the first is that it's 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 non-academic, and this is no knock about academics. You know, I am one, but it, it's so readable, it's so engaging. It, it was it was I couldn't wait to get to it. Every time I had to put it down, I read it over the course of a weekend. And here's something else that really struck me. And this you reminded me very much of Julie Salomon's book about. Um, Brian De Palma, and here's what it was: is that you never roll your eyes on the page, you, and I and I give you a lot of credit for that. You never roll your eyes. You, you never get snarky. You never mock the people involved in the production. And and you, you know you could imagine someone else doing this and saying, "Well, John Wayne was a moron, and Howard Hughes was crazy, and so what do you expect, right?" But you're you, you know you're kind of like no, you know um, in The Devil's Candy, Julie Solomon says, "No one sets out to make a disaster. No one sets out to make a bad movie, right?" So. And I thought that you know, your portrait of John Wayne at the end of his life was unexpectedly moving. Like you're rolling through this book about him playing Genghis Khan and, and the, the, the terrible, you know, the, the terrible makeup job and all the other problems that that raises. And then you get this guy who finds out, you know, he's, that he's got he's got cancer, as he called it, the Red Witch. He kept going, I got the Red Witch. I found out, Right. So can you talk about like, did that surprise you as you did research? Like what, like how you presented John Wayne at the end of the book? Of course.
1: Well, and I, speaking of Julie Sullivan, I don't know if I'll get another point to say that I, her book was definitely a big inspiration. And uh, we've exchanged uh, emails a little bit and just getting to know her process and, and yeah, uh, going in and, and treating everyone with respect because, yeah, it was it was done. They're, they're trying to make entertainment or art and you can't really... Fault people too much for that. So, yeah, seeing what the end result is for most of the cast and crew members is quite horrifying. And then they lived a lot of uh, gruesome uh, pastimes and, and deaths. And so, John Wayne, it was really interesting to me that when he uh, got cancer the first time in the 60s, he uh, was actually one of the first major stars to come out and say yeah i have cancer and uh he became an icon for that he uh he did it to give people hope and then he started to uh do commercials for the american cancer society so it was a different side that is not really talked about with with john wayne uh so i wanted to definitely get that out there especially with these last few years he's really uh taken a, a beating as far as his legacy and people looking back and, and looking at his attitudes and critiquing uh, some of the uh, interviews that he's given, which I do mention in the book, and which you you know you do roll your eyes at and, and shake your head. But he was a, a person of his time and definitely a, a a man stuck in his ways and stuck in his uh, uh, the, the way that he was presented in the media and, and his whole... Uh, status. He he definitely was a a symbol, and so I don't think he wanted to shy away from that. But in his last few years, he definitely was not the man that people... Uh, remember him as being he he was making a lot of uh poor film choices and then he was sick for the last few years of his life and so he couldn't make any movies he couldn't be insured uh so he was very frail and, and weak and then the last time anyone really ever saw him in public was the academy awards and they gave him a big uh, standing ovation and he presented best picture and that was sort of his big grand send-off but uh Yeah, I do talk a lot about the um, changing Hollywood uh, ways and how John Wayne was uh, definitely someone of the old uh, guard and then when you get uh, movies from the late 60s early 70s and he's he uh, was not happy with that and not happy with the change and then going through the sickness at the same time he yeah he, he definitely uh, had a, a rough uh, last few years for sure and i just want people to at least know that that he, he, he can, you can you can pick and choose those little uh, quotes and phrases that uh, people shake their head at now, like the the famous Playboy interview, but he still was a man, and and still had a family, and still, uh, yes, uh, regretted some of his casting choices, and particularly this film, and, you know, I I think, uh, yeah, I I wanted to Paint a, an even picture here.
0: Yeah, you do. You present him in 3D because you don't sh- before. Because I, I said I thought to myself as a reader, I wonder if he's going to mention the Playboy interview, and you do. And, and but it's funny you talk about those commercials he did for the American Cancer Association. He also did all those commercials for Camel cigarettes. Like, they are. and you you have all those in there too. So as a reader, you know you're reading his transcriptions of these Camel cigarettes, and you're shaking your head there, going like, "Oh, come on, man! Like he, he doesn't know this is going to this is going to be one of the things that could possibly kill you," and it. It also reminded me of what you just said about we take it for granted that we know everything about a star's health concerns because we live in the age of social media, things like that. But for for someone to admit that a star of John Wayne's magnitude had cancer, that, that was unbelievable. Exactly,
1: he was a man's man, and so that people couldn't uh, believe that someone as uh, strong—I'm making my, the quotation marks—strong uh, and mighty as John Wayne could have something like that. But uh, it definitely gave him the opportunity to connect with fans and just connect with people in a different way. You know, he gave speeches and. Uh, uh, spoke to the press and his uh, agents and producers were warning him not to. They said it was going to ruin his career. And then uh, he, his next uh, movie after his big uh, surgery, after getting a big chunk of lung removed, it was I think the Sons of Katie Elder. And people flocked to that one because they wanted to support John Wayne and they wanted to see what he looked like. And uh, it was a big deal. Uh, you know, thinking about it now, it, it doesn't... It, so many people have their cancer stories, but he was really one of the first to bring people through it all. And so when you watch it,
0: yeah, I watched, I looked up uh, because of your book, I watched the YouTube clip of him at the Academy Awards. And of course that's, that's what you can't watch it and not think of him standing there and how different he looks than he looked in the searchers or what, you know, and he looks so different. That's what that moment is about is them acknowledging, you know, him as part of this old story of Hollywood.
1: Exactly, yes. he uh, And that's all part of the book as well, because he gets an Academy Award in 1969 for True Grit and this crazy uh, year of change with movies like uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and uh, Midnight Cowboy, which he did not like, which ultimately won. Uh, but yeah, looking at, at that and then going uh, to uh, a very... Uh, out of date man who's poking fun of himself on on TV, and then uh, yes, at the end he's uh, he's really just a, a shell of himself. But uh, obviously, looking back at his career, uh, his uh, his
0: image lives forever yeah he was definitely a different kind of cowboy than you know Ratzzo rizzo or the Dominic so, <laughs> exactly. So let's now I, I want to kind of put the halves together. you know your so your book we've talked about how your book tells two stories. like one is about Howard Hughes and RKO and the making of this this film, and the other is about the nuclear testing in the, in the southwest, right? So do you think that these stories I want to push this a little? Do you think these stories have anything in common thematically? like like how the, you know what happens when these two stories kind of start to mesh?
1: Exactly, yeah. it's. Uh, I, I think it does fit. I think for me, it, it feels like um, <sighs> both Howard Hughes and RKO and uh, the United States government, the Atomic Energy Commission, they both bit off more than they could chew. And I think that uh, there was not a lot of uh, foresight and there was a lot of... Uh, Ego and you know Howard Hughes was a complete uh, egotistical maniac who believed that mm, he could do no wrong, and uh, he hated. He, they they both had the same enemy the, the the Reds, the the communists. Howard Hughes wanted to get rid of communists by all costs, and ultimately ruined RKO basically because of that. Because he just kept firing everyone that he suspected of being communist, and then with America or with uh, nuclear testing i i mean it it's such a interesting story to me but it, it definitely is a sad one because so many people's lives have, have been lost but yeah there was a lot uh, especially throughout the 1950s and, and early 60s of just pouring resources into these crazy tests and uh worrying uh, through the cold war about the the enemy about the soviet union so we have uh yes uh two very misguided forces that uh, Collide and and create a bit of a catastrophe.
0: Yeah, bit off more that they can chew. That's a great. That's a great way to put it in, in both cases, right? So, in closing, you know, we've we've talked a lot about this film that's famous for being bad at things, but um, but what are some movies that you do admire? Like, if you had to do another book about a movie that just 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 knocks you out every time you see it, what are some of your go-to recommendations?
1: Uh my. All-time favorite, uh, people always make fun of me, is Forrest Gump. I, I love Forrest Gump to death. Uh, that, that movie just makes me smile every time. It makes me weep. I, Tom Hanks' performance it is great, and I'm a sucker for baby boomer culture, so that one always, just on a personal level, I love. Uh, I also love The Graduate very much. Uh, Dustin Hoffman uh, is amazing in that movie. Uh, the soundtrack, uh, the editing, and uh, just the... Uh, themes of a very uh, confused lost young man is just uh, it it never gets old so that one is definitely up there Um, I'm a sucker for kind of (laughs) melodramas and things like I I love Terms of Endearment for for whatever reason that one always sticks with me if I'm having a bad day uh, I like putting that one on Uh, as far as classics go uh, you can't see but I have a couple of posters behind me one being the Maltese Falcon the other being Chinatown those are definitely in the top 10 Uh, Anything to do with Humphrey Bogart, honestly. Uh, The best Bogart movie for me is Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I keep coming to that one because it just is such a wonderful, dark, twisted movie about greed. And it looks so gritty. You can just taste the sand between your teeth.
0: So I love that one. African Queen as well. Uh, The list goes on and on. It's funny what you said about Sierra Madre because when you watch the treasure of Sierra Madre, you don't care where that sand is from. You don't care like it's, like it's so funny how would you laugh because like that's the least important thing is the color of the sand unless it's blue, or something. but when you, you, nobody cares about where. Well, where was the sand imported from when they watch when they watch program in Sierra Madre? so Ryan it's it's been great talking with you today I encourage all the listeners to get this book Killing John Wayne The Making of the Conqueror um, even if you haven't read The Conqueror the book is very very rich it's a terrific terrific read so Ryan thank you so much
1: thank you very much for having me it's a blast and always fun to talk movies especially this terrible movie with such a wild story uh, everyone will get a kick out of it uh,
0: trust me <laughs> he's absolutely right thanks everybody bye bye